You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I mean, it's really the artist. I mean, we are the representative of the artist. And so when they hear, I mean, the, the best outcome is when an artist says, I finally feel like I'm hearing my music. Then you're like, my job is done here. Yeah. It's awesome. And so um, that's really who we're doing it for. Hello, welcome to another episode of 2020. My name is Corey Peza here as always with Siobhan Cronin and Benny Goodman. And today uh, we have a super cool episode for, for me personally, because we actually get to dive a little bit more into the audio engineering side of the music industry. And we're going to be talking to Jonathan Weiner, who is a mastering engineer, and he's also a professor at Berkeley School of Music. You guys done so much, and uh, he's just so full of knowledge that I learned. Yeah, but don't feel yeah. alienated, because me as the audio idiot in the group, actually, this conversation felt pretty good. I mean, there's a don't lot that you can so learn. Don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> All right, as I've gotten better. As a shallow person, I'm just going to say he worked with David Bowie and Bruce Springsteen and Frank Zappa and um, just a bunch of people I've listened to. So for those reasons alone, he's cool. Yeah, and we and you know it's this is a an area of music that most people may not be aware of uh, unless you're actually working kind of in the, in the technical side of things. So it I think it's eye opening to anyone who just likes listening to music and wants to know why it sounds so good coming out of the radio. Yeah, so, learn what a mastering engineer actually does. So let's check it out, part one. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Benny Goodman. I'm here with my cohorts in crime as my phone has auto-corrected. Corey Peza and Siobhan Cronin, certainly not in order of intelligence, but... But today we're breaking new ground because we're going to answer a, a, a really oh, a, a, a important <laughs> question, I feel like, for everyone, everyone in the music industry, because we have, according to our friend Shota, a, a good friend of the show, he's a legendary, this is how the email was, legendary mastering engineer. His name is Jonathan Weiner, and he's worked with David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Amy Mann. Like, his list is, I, I'm not even going to go there we'll let him talk about it but i feel you're unworthy breaking new of being ground on this show <laughs> because no 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 jonathan of that. You just on behalf of on all musicians what is mastering really do you really want to know yes you really i've been know? paying oh, uh, so 9.99 you... to a subscription service i just send to some kid in somalia every track i do yeah well uh which answer do you want i can give you so look what is what is it what is it it's changed I'll, first of all let me just say it's changed over the years what it is right now is and, and and in this in some sense it really is still the same as it ever has been somebody sends you a recording they send you a mix and you listen to it and you think how is this going to compare to every other record that's out there does this record sound as good as it can 
If the answer is in that order, pretty good, and yes, you let it go out the door. If the answer is, you know, something needs to be done here to protect the artist from being embarrassed or not fully realizing their artistic vision, the answer is, hang on a second, I'm going to fix this, or I'm going to do something to make this sound better. That's, that's sort of at the crux of it. But, you know, when the, when the whole discipline started, it was like way, way back in the day when there weren't mastering engineers, there were just transfer engineers with lab coats who were paid by record labels to just take a master tape and transfer it to a vinyl master uh, that could be cut into vinyl. And they really just didn't give a damn about how it sounded so long as the level was more or less good. And there was this guy named Doug Sachs who was bold enough to say, you know, if I just take a bunch of this crap out of the circuit, your records will actually sound better. And he proposed this to the folks at the record label. The label shall be renamed uh, Left. I'll leave the name out. And uh, the label said, well, what we need to do? And he said, well, you know, it probably cost you a few hundred bucks to, to rewire the circuitry. And they, you want to spend money on that? Hell no. Only so a Doug, few hundred bucks? <laughs> well, this was in this was in 1962. Fair enough. Yeah. And so Doug Sachs said, well, I'm just going to start a mastering studio. And he was the first mastering engineer who cared enough to try to get the sound as close to the original master and as good as possible. And that set the whole thing off. But there's like a whole bunch of sort of things to think about when we master records. Like, But it all comes down to making sure that the artist is represented as well as possible. You know, I mean, we're building a bridge between an artistic vision and what the listener experiences. And so, and this is like the last stop. Yeah, that, that's a really great way of explaining it. And I'm curious, so in, in the scenario of, yes, this is accomplishing the artistic vision and it's as good as it's going to sound, is that to say that the mastering engineer, I mean, is there little to nothing that you would do in that scenario or does that almost never happen? It, the answer is yes and yes. Like it almost never happens. But um, so I worked on a record. It was a classical record, uh, maybe 22 years ago or something. It sounded amazing. Came in from the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, uh, clarinet concerti with Richard Stoltzman. Amazing. I listened to it. Anything I tried to do to it was just going to make it sound worse or different, but not better. So I was like, you know what? It sounds great. Let's go. I just did a little editing. It won Stereophile Record of the Year because I did nothing to it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so wasn't that that's the right thing and i got paid it was like great oh man i love that story that does not sound like all the record stories but it, your ear it, is what it, you're it getting takes, paid exactly for. it takes yeah. a lot of experience to know when not to do something right well right i mean you know so you think about a producer you know sitting in the control room and on the other side of the microphone is fill in the blank of your favorite vocalist beyonce barbara streisand they deliver a killer performance. What are you going to do? Ask them to do something different? Right? Right. So, so a lot, of, you know, we're kind of in a service to the artist. So we're just, we're trying to make sure that the best thing happens that could possibly happen. But like, you know, in response to, to the question, most of the time you've got to do something. You know, I mean, you, you have to do something to make sure that, that when the record shows up on Spotify or shows up on vinyl, or wherever the heck it's going to go, um, that it's going to stand up. I want to dive real deep into the mastering stuff um, uh, for myself. I'm a producer and a mix engineer, so this is this is like my favorite 
episode we've ever done here because I'm going to answer all my own questions. But for our listeners, um, before we do that deep dive, now that we've kind of established what mastering is in general, I would like to kind of just get your background a little bit and find out how someone gets into this area, which Mm is to most people on the other end of the radio, pretty much unheard of. I grew up in a family of musicians who were also iconoclasts. I mean, they were, they were musicians who were like, let's forge new ground, let's not sort of redo what's been done in the past, which predisposed me to being really interested in the marriage of music and technology. You know, when I first got a whiff of, I mean, even if it was like, you know, The Temptations when I was a kid, listening to the radio, and I heard Psychedelic Shack and the, the crazy sound, at, at, you know, and the vocals at the beginning of that record, I was like, what the heck was that? or you know listening to electronic classical music as opposed to beethoven and so i i was already like music and technology and where it can take us and the new things that we can do this is what i have to do and um there really wasn't i mean the the world wasn't set up in such a way that there was a profession that was like studio engineer or producer not really i mean there were a few famous producers back then um, but people who were involved in making records were either live on tour or working in radio stations or in garages. But there just weren't that many studios proper. Um, so I just kind of made my way. I mean, I found places where I could start to learn about using the technology. Um, were you playing when, an instrument? Or can I yeah, ask what, what your family, yes. what what sort of music, like sp- instrumentally or genre, like what was going on in... You know, what instruments were you touching? What were you working everything, on? Everything, everything. I mean, I was, I, I played music before I spoke English. So, you know, I would play whatever you wanted me to play. I mean, I, I was kind of that, that kind of kid. And um, I ended up at the end of high school being the, the only person who was willing to even think about playing the French horn. So I came out of high school playing French horn. My degree in college was French horn performance and composition but I was running my French horn through an ARP 2600. I was not playing nice. Mozart. I mean, I had to play Mozart to get out of college to play my recital, but the things that I was doing with tape and electronics with the horn, I wanted to turn the horn into something nobody had ever heard before. Can I ask where you went to school? I went to Vassar College. I was a Vassar girl. Okay, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm always interested in like, educational institutions and their openness to uh, unconventional approaches to music. Because even as someone that went to college in 2007 to 2014 era, it was still very, very square in terms of you are a violinist and you will study orchestral excerpts and you will not cross over with anything outside of that. With all due respect to all of my friends who are amazing classical instrumentalists, that to me was like close to dying to try to live that existence yeah, good, i mean i was accurate. undercover i mean vassar <laughs> nobody at vassar was paying any attention we had like yeah. six people in the music department and and everybody who was teaching was sort of quasi checked out and so i got the keys to the recital hall i got the keys to play with the synthesizers and i became the program director of the radio station so we'd make these really wacky electronic recordings and then play them over the air at two in the morning in the Hudson Valley and terrorize people. It was awesome. But it, That's amazing. nobody at the school was sanctioning anything, you know? You were just this going was, rogue. We were totally going rogue. So anyway, sort of, I'll, I'll skip over a bunch of steps, but I was offered a gig in a mastering studio. I didn't go looking for the gig. 
Um, but at the time when I was offered the gig, mastering was really cool because it was the first place that digital was happening. That was in a, in a way that because it was only stereo instead of trying to like do multi-channel recording, it was only you know fifty thousand dollars to get into a system as opposed to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do a multi-track. So it's, it was an opportunity to get into this new technology. And I was like, well, this is kind of cool. So let me investigate what this is. So I, I got a gig. Are you talking about the compact disc? It was, it was at the birth of the compact disc. Have you heard of the compact disc? I have. Yes, there you go. There you go. <laughs> we're dating ourselves. We're, we're not young <laughs> enough to not know about the compact you know, disc. <laughs> I actually just finished two records in the last week where both clients are make, are manufacturing CDs. It's still a thing. Yeah. Because um, they can sell them. But anyway, so, um, but the technology was like magic and fragile and there were very few people doing it. And that led to some amazing opportunities because there were some artists uh, who were thinking about reinventing themselves and, or were fans of new technology who signed on with a record label I was doing a bunch of work for, namely Ryko Disc. And those artists were named Frank Zappa and David Bowie. And, you know, actually Ringo Starr was one of the artists for whom we did a record. And Paul McCartney's brother. I don't know if anybody knows that Paul McCartney has a brother. Um, I did not. And anyway, there's there's a whole bunch of of interesting opportunities that came about because it was the early days of digital. So can I ask you when you, when you said you got the gig a mastering gig, were you doing actual mastering or was it sort of you were a, among other people that were doing it? Like what was? Because I feel like if I were thrown into that, I would say I don't know what's going on here. Right. Well, you know, in the golden era of the studio work, there was such a thing as like being trained. And so I, 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 I was like hired to, to be the QC engineer. And I got, I got paid to listen for a year to records and make sure nothing was screwed up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were no dropouts. You know, there was no, just nothing was wrong in the record. And, you know, I sort of got the notes and checked against what I was hearing and gradually moved into starting to do the work. But I was trained on the job. And before that, I was mixing records and producing records. And I'd, I'd had some, some, started to have some success as a producer and an engineer um, with labels like Celluloid and some of the sort of new hip indies in the mid 80s. Uh, but mastering just took me in this other direction. So you were mm-hmm. doing that, the mixing prior to getting the mastering yes. job? Yes, oh, that's right. And so, you know, kind of coming all the way around to, to your question about how do you get into this? I mean, it's pretty easy nowadays to learn the rudiments of like the gestures of mastering. You know, it's like with painting, you can figure out how to get a canvas and to get some paint and get a brush. But in terms of figuring out how to compose the thing and get the thing out of your head onto the canvas, that takes a while. And um, so for to learn how to master it's really helpful to have mixed for a while, uh, to understand what, to have some empathy and understanding of production and recording, and then get some practice in. And it takes a while. 
What's empathy? Yeah. What what is empathy? That is your only contribution to all these. I, 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 I don't know what that means. You know, I tell you what it means is that when when somebody hands you a record that's really messed up, and you can tell they've put a lot of effort into it and done the best that they could. I mean, you have yeah. two choices: one is to like, you know, tell them to go away, or the other is to figure out, oh, these people are really, really try to do something here. How can I help? That's what I'm talking about. That's a great tip. This makes me think of my husband who has recently, he's a guitar player, recently gotten into mixing a lot. And he has basically, well, he does have empathy, but he doesn't have a whole lot of tact. I would vouch to his empathy. He doesn't have a whole lot of tact when it comes to telling me. I remember one time I spent all day and I was so excited. I recorded like an excerpt of a classical piece, like all these layers of violins. And he listened to it and he's like, did you think this sounded good? And I was like, <laughs> and of course, you know, he wasn't talking about the playing or the performance. He was talking about like the fact that I didn't pan anything and it was a, an absolute mess, which I have since learned to, to do better. But yeah, I, so I can complete. Yeah. So empathy and tact, very, very, I'm sure very important when it comes to building a career. Well, that's probably because you weren't paying him. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a loaded topic. <laughs> okay. Fine. No, I was not paying him, but right. you know, if you well, were paying him, you'd probably figure out another way to, to offer some advice. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. In uh, in terms of the mixing versus mastering, this this is something that's always fascinated me. Um, you know, having worked with a lot of mixers and a lot of mastering engineers, uh, what was it about mastering that you decided to? go that direction you know since you were doing the producing and the mixing prior to that yeah you know what i what really turned me on about it is the variety um so as a mastering engineer in order to make a go of it you kind of have to work on a different record every day you know a, a an a-list mixing engineer might mix 10 records a year because it, it takes time and and you get paid accordingly for mastering it's like it's a day i mean there there have been some instances where it's been longer but but by and large, that's what it is. And so there's just not that many like reggae records to go around, right? So t- today it's reggae, tomorrow it's, you know, metal, the next day it's classical. And I, I really love that. I really loved working across so many different musical genres. Um, and, you know, I, I, I miss some of the creativity that is part and parcel of mixing and production. Uh, so there's a trade-off there. It is it is not the most creative um, part of the production process, although it's remarkable what you can do and still be incredibly subtle, and yet make real differences. But but it's like it's a totally different thing. Who appreciates that? That's a great question. <laughs> um, because I feel like that's. I mean, I'd appreciate it. I think Corey would appreciate it. Siobhan, I feel like on paper would appreciate it, but if you didn't tell her, may not yeah. even know. Yeah. Like, I, that's, no, I think I, no, <laughs> I'm just I think with you, Siobhan. It, no, it's, a good, it's a good point. I mean, it's really the artist. I mean, we are the representative of the artist. And so when they hear, I mean, the, the best outcome is when an artist says, I finally feel like I'm hearing my music. Then you're like, my job is done here yeah it's awesome and so um that's really who we're doing it for do you feel like it requires a lot of sort of groundwork in either 
having had experience of recording or mixing lots of different genres before, because I could imagine, you know, classical music, for example, is my home base, right? So if I hear a classical piece that I'm familiar with, I know what it, I want it to sound like. But sometimes I might listen to a song and I'm like, I don't know whether I like this or don't like this or it's good or bad because I'm just totally unfamiliar with this, this soundscape and this genre. Yes. The answer is totally yes. I actually, I, so I teach at Berklee College of Music and one of the things I have to work with students to stop doing is trying to fit everything into what they think the sound, you know, the sound of a record is. And, you know, I, I've, so many times I've heard kids try to take like a jazz recording and match the low end to an 808 kick drum in a hip hop track. And it's just <laughs> like, that's not what the instrument is doing. It's not the role in this music. So let's like, let's pull back and think about what everybody's role is. Like, what is everybody supposed to be doing in the genre? So you, you have to understand it. You know, otherwise you're gonna make mistakes. Can you demystify something else for me? Is analog actually better than digital? What should I be telling people at parties when I try to sound smart? <laughs> the answer You're is vibe that, tonight, Ben. The answer is there's no difference. Wow, that's that's pretty. Uh, that's a monumental statement because I feel like a lot of people do argue about this, and I'm not even really a, a techie person. Elaborate. I, I'm lying, but oh. no. But it's also it, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> I was excited to go down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> no. So it's it's both it's both totally true that they are completely the same because it's just sound, right? Whether it's described as voltage in a wire or by uh, numbers representing waveforms, it's the same damn thing. Um, there are some subtle differences between the two. Um, there, there are some things that happen when you go into digital that don't happen in analog and vice versa, um, but, but there is no better. I mean, Really, it's, you know, if you can imagine a color, a sound that you want to get, and you can get there, it kind of doesn't matter how you get there. So there's some amazing, like, you know, weird transformers wound with, like, metal from the center of the earth that if you run signals through, you know, I mean, like, there, there are these devices that, gen that have color to them that are kind of unusual and unique, but you, we can kind of replicate all of that in digital. Um, it's just sometimes harder. Has it has it always been that good? Because I feel like no, at, from my no, so, okay, no, so, no. so no. this is where I'm at. So yeah. I grew up in a time, you know, I, I am, uh, I, I, I think I don't know. They call us a, a zennial or something like that. So, I think born, you're a millennial, it, are you not? No, no. Born in 1982, a very small group of people. Where when I was born, of course uh, you're special. Were, how can I be special? <laughs> yeah, like, there there were beepers. You had to use a phone. There were still rotary phones. There was no internet. Uh, uh, but we were alive when cell phones did become a thing. We were alive when dial-up became a thing. But there, that was a, uh, an exponential difference in technology because mm. now, like, everyone has cameras. They have computers and all that. But when I, I was born, having an Apple IIc meant you were a rich person. And right. it, so that's a crazy time to be alive. So I was lucky to have recorded. I was telling you this last night at dinner to have recorded it at Longview Farm Studios in North Brookfield because – we actually had to bring in a Pro Tools rig to an analog setup because that was when they started having digital backup. You could start doing the tracks from the tape. And I'm so lucky that I actually got to sit there and, and work with a tape machine and go through a Neve console because at this point, 
technology, I mean, even in the last 10 years, I almost feel like there is no reason for that other than you want to sit in front of a huge board. And that's how much technology. Now you can't, the painter can't blame his paints. You can't say, I don't have an SSL board. You literally have so much technology that it's like you're blinded by science. And now you yeah. just have to be Thomas Dolby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you just took us someplace. So um, he always does. We go lots of places. Get ready. Uh, yes. No. Well, I went there last night. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. When you're with Ben, you always go somewhere you don't plan. It's good. It's good. I'm I'm susceptible. But so to go back, here here's the thing. I mean, it's it's fun to work with. It's like when you play different guitars, right? Each guitar has a sound. You could probably replicate that. Um, but if you just pick up the tool or the the instrument and it immediately does this thing, that's that's really lovely and there's less friction in the whole process. And that's sort of one of the nice things about analog. If there's a color you're after, you just grab the color as opposed to turning the thing on and pulling up a plug-in and doing the this and whatever. That's, that's a workflow enhancer for sure. Um, but the other thing that was, I mean, I, I actually am so glad I don't have to work with tape anymore because it was, it was just time-consuming. And the minute you made a recording, it would start to re degrade. And if you went back to it a year later, the top end would never come back the same way anymore. And, mm. you know, it's expensive and it's not even environmentally responsible. But anyway, but the cool thing about it, and this is the only thing I really, really miss about the console and the tape machine, is that you had to work slower and you had to make choices right up front. And yes. we don't have to do that anymore. You can have like a zillion tracks on your Apple M1 keyboard or a computer and you know record like for the rest of your life and never have to make any decisions because there's still one more track to fill up right yeah i very and, much relate you know, to this <laughs> yeah you have like 24 <laughs> tracks maximum we were lucky when i was a kid when we we had we didn't even have what no we had you know eight tracks or four tracks um and we had to like mix stuff like right now it's like you got a drum kit i'll give you two tracks for that yeah so you got to mix it. I, I used to make video yeah. from a VCR to another VCR, and I thought that I was stealth. There you go. <laughs> I will say, from from the mixing perspective and the time that I came up with in the last 10 years or so, I uh, while I had been in studios when I was younger and, and seen the tape and the console and everything, I never understood it at that point. I was just on the, the musician side of things. Uh, and so coming into mixing and production and everything, I always had every tool imaginable at my fingertips which is the worst situation ever because now i mm -hmm. own thousands of plugins uh that i haven't opened in a decade uh and i now at this point in my career use like three or four plugins to do everything but i had to go through this phase of having this this idea that oh well this this thing is going to make me sound better this thing's going to make me sound better all this all these like flashy things and the gear and all this stuff and the uh, newest uh, everything and that's how I get I get better at mixing and then seeing uh, you know contemporaries and people you know that I have had a chance to work with that came up in the situation where they were so limited their their instincts are so sharp because of that because there was no oh the new shiny thing it was like oh no we need to solve this with the three things we have in front of us. And so they're so locked in on that. And it's, it's more about practicing making quick decisions and instinctive decisions and being willing to make mistakes and then living with them. I mean, I made some really, really bad recordings early on. 
but I had to make those decisions. And then later I was like, okay, I'm going to do that differently next time. <laughs> Isn't know? that just arrogance though? Cause I mean, I feel like that's maybe why I'm good is cause I'm just kind of arrogant and Corey just kind of sits there and snarfs at me and goes, huh. And then fixes things every once in a while. But for the most part, I make decisions. No, I think your perspective with, changes no, it's, it's, it, with yeah, experience. It's just like when you maybe. go back and listen, it, yeah, I think as you develop your craft, I mean, you can elaborate on this more, but yeah, your, your, your changes as you improve in your, your skill. I'll, I'll yeah. tell you what my skill is, is I, I know when things are terrible and when I don't feel like it's horrible, I know I'm onto something. I, I do know pe- so there, there are some people who just learn faster and have ha- are quicker to sort of develop good instincts than others. I don't think I was a particularly fast learner. And I, and I have met some people and some young people who are just like spot on and I'm like, whoa, like you're really good at what you do. That's not most people, but there are people like that. And so, um, you know, everybody can get there, but some people take longer. One thing you said, uh, you know, that you at one point you made some records that were there were a lot of mistakes, and you, you know, then hopefully you never make those mistakes again. But you have to make those mistakes to know that you shouldn't make them. Uh, one thing that I run into a lot with clients is we'll work on something, you know, really put a lot of effort into a piece of music, and by the end of it, it might sound amazing sonically. Maybe I did my job and they're happy with it, but they don't like their own performance or they don't like the song anymore because you know they've been spending so much time on it now they think they can do better in something and one of the biggest (laughs) lessons i learned was putting out something that wasn't perfect and letting it go so that the next thing can be you know incrementally better because i had that same problem where i i have you know ben Ben and i have hard drives full of songs that'll never see the light of day and it's and took many years for me to to have the confidence to put something out that i wasn't 100 percent behind not that I didn't think it was worth putting out, but that I didn't think was where it could be. But it always made me go to the next project like, well, I have to beat that last one. Right, right. And you know, you know, there are stories about famous records that came out full of mistakes, and the mistakes were some of the coolest things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you've heard the story about Creep, the Radiohead tune. Uh, I don't know so if I ha- are you familiar with that song where it yeah, starts yeah, where it's stripped yeah. down and then like midway through the first verse there's this uh the sound of the guitar coming on and this the c- c- that there was a guitar the track best part that, of the absolute the absolute best part of the song exactly there was a guitar that guitar track was supposed to be on from the beginning and paul coldery who was mixing that track forgot to unmute it and so the, he was mixing it and it was like, oh shit. And pulls up <laughs> and the mute and arose. that happened. <laughs> and he, he turns to the band and says, and this is at Fort Apache. Fort Apache, in, 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 in Cambridge. Cambridge. Oh. Anyway, so he, and, and so he's like, I gotta go back. And they're like, are you kidding me? That was like genius. <laughs> like don't, <laughs> don't. And so. To this right? day. I, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not a huge Radiohead fan. I actually saw them on the Benz tour, and then I saw them more recently, and I was like, why do you have two drummers? That makes no sense. You have no, you need to get some two coffee machines. But but I got to tell you, and they don't play the song. They're one of those bands that are like, oh, our biggest song ever. We're just not going to play it. They did it in Mansfield, Massachusetts, and I got to tell you, everybody, everybody in there, <laughs> yes, right. everyone everyone because they're one of those first off they don't play it so when they play it everyone's staring at his hand waiting they're just waiting and, that was, and that that's because the guy just punched him in 
That's on the right. master. That's it. That's it. That's great. I'd like to. Th- I thought geni- they were genius for something because you know I don't understand Radiohead and people said, well, why are they genius? I would have said that song. That would have been my instance. And uh, now it's all we my know jazz it's the friends that engineer. are very into Radiohead. I feel like jazz musicians are like I all think, my jazz friends are really into them. I I think they're fantastic in the sense <laughs> that they are so themselves. You know, they've got a sound, their production sensibility, and, Ni- and Nigel Godrich is really interesting the way he uses distortion the way he pans stuff around i you know it's I, and tom york's voice is sort of a weird foil against the instrumentation um i don't love everything they've done equally well but i i enjoy what they do very much see there's just muse though for me i when i heard muse the first time i was like mm-hmm. wow did the guy from radiohead do a solo project and all of a sudden sound way better and then i just realized no that's that's matt bellamy who plays guitar better than Tom York, who sings better than Tom York, and then they do like avant-garde. See, that's me, though, because that's the thing with music. It's subjective. That's my opinion, and that's what I love about it, is that we can argue about it all day, and nobody's technically right. Nobody is technically right. That's right. But I, I, you know, yeah, I've definitely undergone an evolution, probably because of my profession, where I've come to look inside like everything that i'm handed i try to look deep inside it and find something interesting and i kind of have to um and i've worked on a lot of projects that that i don't like you know and so to, to in order to do that and to be in the space with it you have to figure out like what's interesting what is what's in here what are they trying to do you know, uh, let me ask you, you mentioned earlier, a lot of this is like in the period of a day, you're, if you're mastering something in a day, how do you get yourself in that mindset? Because when I think of myself recording or doing anything, I always feel like there's a period of time that I have to let stuff stink, sink in and, you know, go back and listen to it. And there's like some, some changes that happen mentally with just letting it settle. How do you, how do you have that whole spectrum of a process in a day? Well, that's you sort fascinating of, to me. You, you practice it and you get good at it at making the sort of initial assessment. I I, I won't say that. I, I would love to be able to like listen to something, go away for two days, and then come back and do the gig. But I don't always have that luxury. Um, and you know, the other thing I would really love that I don't always get to do is listen to a band play live before I work on their record. Mm-hmm. Because there's something that you get when you do that that you don't get when you just hear the thing that came out of the studio but but again you know sometimes that's just we're required to do it you know one of the sad sort of and this is kind of an inside like mastering engineer commiseration joke but you know when a band comes up with the idea of you know we're going to make a record the first thing they do is they set their release date right it's like okay we're, it's gonna, and and so it's like we're gonna use the first month to track the guitars well we need an extra week and yeah. then we're gonna use the next month to do this and we need an extra week and you know you've you've got this immovable object object which is they've announced the release date and the concert and you've got this move moving fast moving object which is the production process and mastering ends up having to happen like right And you were, yeah, shortly yeah. before it collides. And, and it's <laughs> like, okay, you know, here we go. Let's get this thing out the door. <laughs> and so that happens. And occasionally I've gotten uh, calls from record labels in a couple of cases where they've asked me if I was done with the record and they hadn't sent me the audio yet. <laughs> 
that's how, like, that's how twisted it can get. You should have said, yeah, did you pay me, though? I, I thought <laughs> that's right. That's usually like, what I say, and it. then I remind them that they haven't sent me the audio, and then they, they go away. Oh my gosh. Well, let me let me ask you. So we were talking earlier, you said there's kind of two scenarios, either, you know, don't touch it, it's great, or the alternate version, which is, well, something has to be changed. What is kind of the spectrum of possibilities in that scenario? So have you ever been in a situation where people have to go back and re-record stuff? Is it more a matter of the mix needs to be changed? Like, what are some of the different things that happen when something needs to be fixed outside of your actual technical moving around? Well, yeah, I mean, there's like multiple scenarios. There, there, are, there have been instances where people have just made horrible technical errors. Um, like there was a band from um, uh, Marblehead? No, Manchester by the Sea years ago that came in with a record. And um, in one of the songs, the drummer decided the drums weren't loud enough. You should never let your drummer mix your record. And so... <laughs> Uh, he he took the mix and tried to line it up with the drum tracks without really being in sync and mixed the drums back in. And basically the result was it sounded like somebody had left a vacuum cleaner turned on during the song. <laughs> and, and he brought the track in and I hit play and I was like sitting there like, I'm going to turn around and look at this person and I got to think about what the next thing is I'm going to say. <laughs> it was so messed up. Um, so sometimes there's like stuff that just is whacked and goes wrong. Sometimes people just have really pardon me, but they have like shitty listening environments. Mm-hmm. And, and that can result in a mix where it's like, you know, a little, little hard to hear the vocal. Is that okay with you? Yeah, where the reality is, I can't even hear the vocal a little bit. Yeah, and so well, 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 do me a favor because last night, because we're all, we had Nuno Betancourt on our our song, and I yes. have a love hate relationship with him. You you told me an absolutely wild story about doing a record for him, and I, and oh. I need to hear it again because it's fantastic, and I feel like Corey and Javon will both appreciate this one. Okay, I love and our the listeners, Nuno moment. The, the, the I mean, three it was of a, them. It was a this sort of crazy scenario, and this is before. I mean, it's after FedEx, but it's like before the internet, really. So, um, you know, nothing happened easy. <laughs> it's an interesting easy, window. <laughs> nothing happened easy or fast at that point. And I got a call on a Saturday night. I had some had young kids. My kids are older and grown up now, but they were little. And I'm up, yeah, it's the weekend. And, I, and the phone rings and I pick it up. And it was probably a rotary phone. And hello, this is Nuno Betancourt. I'm 30,000 feet over Kansas. I want to come in tomorrow and master a song. And first of all, I don't know how he got my number. Um, but Well, he's calling you from an airplane in the 80s. He's calling you from an airplane in the, in the, in the that's, 90s. That's pretty damn cool because you, you, can't, you couldn't do it back then unless you were like James Brown. Right. So either this is a crank call. So I'm, I have this moment where I'm like, do I hang up the phone or do I play along and find out what's going on here? <laughs> So I said, okay, what time can you be at the studio? I gave him the address, 10 o'clock, great. Shows up at the studio. It turns out it's really Nuno Betancourt. He's got a half-inch reel of tape in one hand with his mix. And then he's also got a guitar and a guitar amp that he's bringing in. I'm like, okay, he's going to go to a gig or something, go into the studio. I start to set up the machine, put the tape up. He had other plans for you. He starts (laughs) tuning. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going to try to master this record. And he thinks he's going to just practice while I'm doing it. Like, how is this going to work? And he's like, well, I, I, need to, I need to cut some overdubs. So they'd already finished the record. They already mixed the thing. And he decided it needed more, gu- more guitar. 
a so, guitarist thinking it needed more guitar. Hmm. Yeah. So we flew in guitar tracks in the choruses as I was mastering the record, and that's what happened. But, you know, so you have to be ready for anything. With Nuno, you know, of course. Yeah. There have been, like, these weird moments in my career where I've had that, like, decision point. Like, this seems crazy. Do I, <laughs> do I go along with this, or do I send it away? Is this going to be a waste of time or cost me money? Or I feel like that's the perfect description for a career in music. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Finding that threshold. Yep. That's probably, that's probably where a lot of people name, end, up, end up getting it's married. It's the name too, of this right? program, there's, I guarantee There's also, it. there's a sweet spot where it's like, oh, all right, all right this is a little different today than what I'm used yes. to doing. Yes. It's like, all right, this is a lot different. Okay, this is getting weird. All right, yeah. I'm done with this shit. <laughs> yeah. There is a fun like spot five in there. stages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, there, there was my favorite record that I ever worked on. Actually, I'm not going to name names right now. Sure. But um, it, I, I got a call from an artist who I absolutely adore. And she said, look, I want you to master my record. You've got to rescue it. Take as much time as you need. And basically, you know, sort of opening the budget up and um, and that was kind of a, a different scenario. Rescue it? How was it? It was an issue with the mix. Yes, it was mixed by a very famous mixing engineer who was mixing in a room, and the mix engineer did not know what he was hearing because he'd never worked in the room before. Interesting. Um, Can you yeah. give an example of something you had to do to to rescue that mix? You know, it was was interesting. I. So, um, one of the things, especially when you're using tape, one of the things that's interesting about it is that if you play back a tape on different tape machines, it sounds different. I mean, notably, noticeably different. And so, um, and I had a bunch of them. So I actually worked, I worked on the record several times using different tape machines as the source. And then I would use different, um, kind of vintage and interesting outboard gear, sort of signal processors, um, to uh, and just listen to the signature of the stamp of the sound and find something that was actually going to suit the record. It was, it was not a simple, like, just add a little treble and everything was good. Um, and I was, I was given the license to experiment that way and, and figure out what was going to make that record really sing. Wow. Um, so this is kind of a good example. You know, we talked a little bit about how the technology, uh, you know, from back in the day is so different than nowadays and the different options you have. Uh, when you were mastering a record, say 20, 30 years ago versus today, uh, now that you have all these tools and I, and I, I know you're a consultant to Isotope. Well, yes. I, I love Isotope. I use, uh, I use mm -hmm. their products on every one of my mixes. Um, but they, you know, that, that is a, a technology that I'm sure that 30 years ago, mastering engineers would have given, you know, their left nut to have on some yeah. certain situations. <laughs> uh, you hold like, back it, on that it, one, Corey. I'm surprised. It's, I mean, it's it's done for, for tracks I've received that I didn't record that I've had to make, you know, some pretty drastic changes and fixes on. It's done some miraculous things. Um, so in terms of that, how's your perspective on the tools now versus you know when you began and how does it change your approach to the way you actually do a master no actually i mean i can work faster 
And, um, you know, I, I, I have, like you said earlier, I have like 10,000 plugins. I use seven yeah. of them. <laughs> I know them. And, um, and, but also some of the new approaches to problems that we've had for ages um, are much more facile. Like I can, I can get to the answer much more quickly now because we, we can do things in DSP, digital signal processing, we couldn't do before. And there's been some real, really cool innovations in that way. So, so it's definitely, in some ways I feel like I can be a little bit more intuitive and just like, I know exactly what to do here and I grab the thing and I do it um, and I just have the right thing as opposed to trying to sort of cajole the analog thing to do the thing I wanted to do. You know, I don't, I don't have to experiment quite so much. The, um, the, the- I have yeah. to ask you because I'm I'm sorry because it popped into my head because it's so important. One of the first times I had ever heard of like people using isotope and all that kind of stuff was like on Ghost Hunters because you know they have these EVP <laughs> these electro voice phenomenon as they call it um, where they basically use all these filters and then at whatever high frequencies for us plebeians that don't know what's going on there's ghosts talking like you know Johnny died here Johnny says don't come in is that real. <laughs> 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 Did you ever see the movie The Conversation? No. I oh, have you not. have to watch it with Gene Hackman. It's the only oh, I love time. Gene Hackman. It was the only. It's a very dark movie, but it's the only movie I can think of where the audio engineer is the hero, and he and he's actually doing. <laughs> it, it's like surveillance and forensic audio, and kind of related to it. So you have to watch that movie. Oh yeah, it's on the um, interesting. Anyway, but so I've done work for the Defense Department, trying to dig out the what was being said when somebody was trying to extort money in a in a an arms deal um so the the ghosts i don't know i think you're sort of on your own there um I'm there's, not a lot of, vote. there's a lot of whole networks devoted to it so i was just curious for for financial reasons yeah i mean there's a lot of ways that that like sound can travel through the air and end up being induced into a circuit and get and show up in some audio somewhere. And so I don't know. That's well, I mean, I know sound no, bounces in 45 degree angles, right? So like, as, as long as I know that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But that's yeah. interesting. Have you, have you like, can you tell us about some other, unusual things you've been called on to do for your ear that that may not relate to music or or something because that's i would have never thought of that but yeah i mean you're you're a master oh, yeah. at hearing things <laughs> so well i was actually i was hired to consult on a chipset so one of the weird things is that phone manufacturers um one of the things they care about is how the audio sounds and how loud their phone is like the phone needs to be loud and there's like a loudness war among phone manufacturers. And so well, I want to get into that on the next episode, by the way, for mastering, but that's interesting. It's also with phones. So they design chipsets with limiters and multiband compressors. I mean, if you drive too much level into the speaker, it'll burn up. So you have to, you know, there, there's sort of a tolerance you have to work within. Anyway, so I was asked to, to consult on circuits to help a chipset manufacturer optimize their the the DSP in the phone to make the phone sound better. 
So that, that was not something I expected. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that people don't think about, you know, if someone says, oh, I'm an audio engineer. It's like, oh, so you, you work in your basement and, and make beats? Is that what you do? <laughs> right. um, and right. to, to know that there is actually the word engineering in there and there is a lot of uh, knowledge that that I'm not saying every audio engineer has, but there is a lot of uh, industry where that knowledge is very applicable in ways that most people would never really think of. Um, now you are, and I, is this still up to date? Are you the president of AES? I I am the past president of AES. I am gradually on the. I'm gradually peeling away the hats so I can start doing some other things that so I want to be we'll doing. Pick, so I'll pick this up as past president of AES. You have uh, you know even more unique perspective on the technology of audio engineering, and uh, I. We, we're we're up we're about 10 minutes left in this episode so i don't want to dive too deep but i would like to yeah, next I'm episode no no more Guys, wait about, for next week yeah there's just so much more to um the world of audio than i think people fully appreciate and not just not for any other reason than you know if it sounds if your favorite song sounds good coming out of the radio who cares you know what i mean let's just take the last 10 minutes or so and and talk about what's your day-to-day look like right now uh you know in terms of of are are you you know you're you're peeling off some hats but what are you what are you trying to focus on right now uh i mean so it's a mixture of i'm teaching um i'm actually in the middle of writing some new curriculum uh i am the chair of the audio engineering society convention that's happening next month in new york city uh so i'm getting ready to tie a bow on that um and there's there's some stuff to do to get to the finish line, talking, helping people kind of, I'm curating the program, the technical sessions and making sure that um, everybody has what they need there. Um, I'm mastering records. I'm actually finishing a couple of records for some local artists. Um, I probably should be doing right now instead of talking to you, but I love talking to you. Um, and so don't the tell- The honest words ever We all spoken. have work we should be doing right now. <laughs> yeah. This is how fair, we avoid our fair. actual work. Naughty Day is on live right now and I'm not watching it. There you go. Um, and have I forgotten anything that I'm doing right now? I mean, that's that's kind of, that's where it's at. So for the mastering, are you doing, you know, do you have a, like a, a quota of work you do that or are you just kind of taking it as it come in as it comes in or do you try to delegate certain time that you're working in the mastering versus teaching versus everything else no it's it's pretty fluid and i'm really fortunate in that you know i I spent about 30 years being solely in production and that was my gig and i had to hustle to make sure that i could make ends meet and didn't always you know it it wasn't stress-free let's put it that way um but now it, there, there are two things I have going for me. One is I've, I've mastered, I've probably worked for eight or 9,000 unique clients and artists during my career. And so if 1% of the people that I've worked with call me in a given week, I'm already too busy. You know, so there are people who are calling me and saying, you know, so you did my record last year, would you do another one? So there, there's, there are records that, that continue to, to pop, pop up. Um, but I never know how much it's going to be. Um, and I've also got other stuff that, that helps pay my bills. And, you know, not to sort of be uh, depressing or anything, but, you know, the music 
industry for artists is really, really hard right now. And um, to try to make a go of it as a producer uh, or a mastering engineer is, I mean, you, you have to hustle all the more. Um, Do you think it's plus, a function of just like the, the, the internet or the, the presence of people just available? Is, is the quality higher? What, what do you think is the source of that? You mean, why is it tougher? Yeah. I think it's because everybody um, thinks that they can just turn on, it's like turning on your faucet and water comes out. They turn on their computer or their phone and music comes out and they don't think about where it comes from. Mm -hmm. And so nobody's getting paid make the music i mean you know you get paid for touring you get paid for things around music music has become a commodity that fuels other things it's part of content um but it's it's a tough much tougher business and a much different business and there are people who are very clever who are doing you know doing fine but it's different well i'd be i'm curious for someone like Corey, he's coming up in the last decade <laughs> um well it's 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 true why should he not work on making a plugin versus competing with a plugin that does what master? Because I've been paying nine ninety nine a, a, a track to send my plugin to a website where the send best plugin to from, a website. Yeah. No, my <laughs> uh, my, to the my bounce my bounce to the website, and then they send it back, and it's mastered, and it's nine ninety nine, and it says the world's greatest mastering engineers. Why would I not spend ten dollars versus you? Well, I mean, let's think about this for a second. How <laughs> can you question. actually possibly be getting the attention of a person who, who's listening to your music and, and trying to figure out what you were trying to do and doing something that's, that fits it for $9.99? How is that even possible? doesn't matter it's louder absolutely yeah <laughs> i agree yeah, with which, you 100 i have no cool. idea it, it's, no, no, it's red book it's red book mastered it looks like a perfect square on my screen <laughs> i think so I think these are two no. different things right yep. but 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 there is exactly what you're saying and that is a thing and if that's working for people great but there is no human element there is no collaboration there is nothing about what, ha what happens at that stage that has anything to do with your music. They're just measuring some, like, it's like, you know, it's sort of like going to, uh, I don't know, name of, you know, Filene's, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, go going to Filene's <laughs> basement and getting a suit. It, it exists in Europe still. Filene's oh, yeah. basement is also uh, extinct. But okay. I love that store. I got I so know. many good clothes there. It's like TJ Maxx. Off sacks. It's like going, right, going clothes shopping at TJ Maxx. There you go. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, what are we doing here? I mean, if, if this is a creative endeavor and there's some, like, vision we're trying to realize and some joy, like, why are you turning it into a commodity? And if, if that's what it works for you that's cool that's fine do you ever that's find just, a guy at tj maxx going i don't get paid enough to fucking answer that question you weirdo <laughs> yes that is exactly tj maxx that is the whole vibe it's like you I, get bet, I bet a lot of it comes down to just a, 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 an, an information gap and knowing what is it that you're asking for with mastering literally the and thanks for saying that was what i was gonna say is the, the reason i'm so happy that you're on the show right now is i feel like there's a uh a large community of 
music producers, engineers, and musicians that are teaching themselves, uh, which is which is great that there's those resources out there. But there's a lot of echo chamber stuff going on, and depending on the the, the source you're using to learn, you know, you might get in with people that you know, maybe you're unscrupulous in their teachings and they heard something and they're regurgitating to people. And you get to this level where people do think mastering is just the step that makes it slam, you know? And so when then they find this service is 10 bucks that makes whatever, you know, maybe not great mix louder, but still not great to them, that's a successful mastering job. So having you explain the detail and the care that can go into it is I think really important for people to understand. And, you know, like I said, I think the, the best way to put it is like you can buy a suit off the rack, right? And, and it, it's, it looks okay. It gets the job done, but if you go get it tailored, you're going to look dope and you're same thing. Your record's going to sound great if it's actually customized by someone that cares and takes the yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that one way to look at it is a year after you release something, are you going to remember the amount of money you spent? on the master or are you going to be remember how proud you were of the record absolutely though i agree 100 um, yeah, yeah 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 but anyway i i think that's well said i mean there's a lot to unpack about that um you know it's one of the one of the reasons i actually got into education is to be able to um sort of understand and then figure out how to communicate what i think is important in at, at the heart of what we do I, I don't have a, like a moral opposition to AI mastering or to the 999 thing that's going on. You know, it, that, that, that has its place in the world. And it's, in fact, we, in fact, the matter is it is in the world. So it's ridiculous to say, well, that well, shouldn't okay. exist because it does no, exist. Let me ask you this. This is a very important question you just alluded to. You said AI mastering. So I've seen all these deep fakes. You probably know what I'm talking about where you can see people. Uh, uh, and there's, you know, people at Google who genuinely think that the AI has gone sentient. And I know on paper that's really stupid and it didn't happen, but it's becoming so indiscernible. Do you think that there's going to be a point where technology becomes so good that sending it to an AI mastering thing will just be a plug in and it literally will be indiscernible from a Bob Ludwig or a Ted Jensen or anything that you could ever do? It's exponentiality, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a, that's a, that's a, yeah. a, a beautiful I, way to, answer, to cap yeah. the episode, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that's mastering. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. that that's yeah. that's it's a, it's true. There's there's probably a lot of elements that need to go into that, but uh, there are. you know, we're we're a ways away from that. But but inevitably we're heading in that direction. Where we end up, I don't know. Yeah. Well, we, will, we can dive I'll tell you where you do end up. There's going to be elves and coffee, and it's delicious. <laughs> I will tell I think, you, man. I'm uh, still waiting on mine, man. I'm, I've been craving. I've been I, I have not gotten any elves and coffee, I by the way. I gave you some had, the other day, I had Corey. a glass. I had a glass of elves and iced right, coffee. You need to get another house. bag of that and put yeah. it in the mail, because I've got no elves and coffee, and I'll, that's why I'll I'm drinking you, wine right now. I'll give Corey a bag of it, but man, so I got to tell you guys. What am I missing? Oh, you don't not crush your own Ellison, beans. Ellison well, listen, David Ellison, <laughs> the illustrious musician formerly of Megadeth, plays with the Lucid, plays with Ellison Soto. He has his, well, let's list this off. He has his own art that he's created with, uh, with optical illusions, with his bass that's now for sale. He has uh, a, a mo his movies out. He has um, a, a nonfiction book 
about his life. He has a fiction book that's a, I think it's a detective novel um, with a whole that's a series. Um, what else does El oh, Ellison? Um, he has his Before own Before you studio. get carried away with inaccurate information, second. okay? No, that's second. all true. Hold you on. said the word coffee. This is what I'm really interested in. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what's up with the coffee? So one of it's his delicious. business ventures is is a coffee company, Ellison Coffee Company, and it's it's pretty tasty. Rock and Rose. I it love is, good coffee. I've got my Rancilio, Rocky, and Sylvia pair over here. I mean, like good coffee. Um, did you ever? Uh, what's the name of the uh, bass player? Is a ball guy plays for? He played for King Crimson. Um, oh. Oh, I know man. Robert. I feel like Fripp, Ben would know this. Yeah. I know Robert Fripp from Fripp Tronics. Tony, Tony, why. Tony Levin. Tony Levin. He has a if website. He had stick. I would have known. Right. He has a whole page on his website dedicated to coffee machines. <laughs> and when I saw that a long time ago, I was like, "This guy knows what's important." So I started investing in good coffee machines, and I'm really interested in good coffee. So if that's good coffee. I want to know uh, all about uh, was it. Was uh, it was it the, the M Works website where I saw in the in the gear pages after the analog compressors and EQs there was the whole section on the coffee machine that you had in the. <laughs> Thank you, Tony Levin. I mean, Ooh, he made. I need to look that up because I also love good coffee. So well, well then I guess the last thing I'll ask you about the good coffee machine. I so I'm not a coffee drinker until recently. I had a Keurig at first, and that tasted like total horse shit. And I realized it was definitely about the heat. For which the it, it made the coffee. I, I don't know. So the the new coffee machine I have was just a Ninja. Which, by the way, everything Ninja I've had has been fantastic. Maybe it's an Epiphone, but it plays like a Gibson. It's amazing. <laughs> and if I crush my beans, which by the way, this Ellison Rock and Rose, which is a premium light roast coffee, I'm just smelling the bag right now, and it the endorphin level you know, is it's yeah. tantamount to ecstasy. I can smell the bag from here. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I could smell the bag, but I didn't yes. get any. So yep. smell the glove oh, instead. We'll, we'll have to talk Look, to David. He doesn't and get treat that you all up. well enough. I know, right? I just get excluded you know from all the I'll, good stuff. I'll send, I'll send David this video, and I'll say, "Hey, man, I, I don't live in the same state as this lady. Send her some damn coffee, so we can talk about it in the next show." <laughs> the girl or, needs you know, coffee. You, yeah. you have, you have, his, you have his address. He just asked me my my address, and I sent it to him. So maybe this you should David say Ellison? something to him. Yeah, it's David like Ellison. it's like you said. Oh, I'm not going to go to prom with you. So I'm like choice number three no thanks <laughs> just kidding send me some coffee david <laughs> and on, and on that note email him. he doesn't watch this show <laughs> i'm just kidding on, on that, that note uh, yes uh this has been incredibly informative it's been a pleasure talking with you john and I, I hope you'll hang out with us for part two and i would like to dive more into the you know teaching uh, as a professor at berkeley and your work with isotope and other other areas of audio that not aren't necessarily in the mastering uh side of things but uh, is there anything you want to let our several dozen listeners or viewers know about, uh, <laughs> including, and I have to say this because every time Ben says his, his mom's watching, my dad is watching as well. So we do have at oh, least two um, so nice. people checking this out. So hi, dad. Thank you for checking this out. Well, <laughs> hi, Corey's dad. Just thank you for keeping me up late. <laughs> it's our pleasure. That's what we do best. All right. He could Guys, be working instead of talking to us. It's only seven thirty, you old yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have some links. Uh, you know, M, M Works Mastering uh, and, and all the other things you have going on. We'll, we'll put links in the description, uh, and we will see you guys next week on twenty twenty two zero two zero dash d dot com. Thank you, as always, for checking out this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-D.com, like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. 
This week's throwback clip is from episode number 48, featuring acclaimed producer and engineer Ulrich Wild. Check it out. You know, it's actually in, in those big expensive studios that you come to realize that the gear is just, um, you know, a means to an end. Um, because uh, when you travel from studio to studio, like I was able to do, not everybody, not every, every studio had the same stuff. And so you needed to accommodate. Like, you know, it was like, I always use four twin ends on the toms, but that's, they don't have any here. So what do we do? What do you guys use on the toms normally? Well, here we go. Let's use those then and see what happens. Um, and you can't, again, unless you have the budget, unlimited uh, dollars, you can't halt a session and wait for, you know, two weeks for a microphone to become available or for, you know, somebody to run out and get new mics while you're sitting in a residential studio in the woods or whatever. Um, none of that, you know, applies really. That's why it's that it's that uh, having to become creative was like, well, I've never used this mic before. I guess these are our overhead mics today. So let's see how it goes. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.